0: I want to thank the choir and orchestra, Fred, Ruth, Donna, and you as a congregation for turning our hearts to the Lord. You know, the Psalms are praises to God, not just telling who He is and what He's done, but exulting in it. And you have helped us exult uh, today. You've lifted our hearts, and we are so very grateful for that. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Tim taught us from 1 Thessalonians 5 that our attitudes and our expressions of rejoicing, of praying, and of thanksgiving grow from our connection to God. And as he was discussing that particular point, he cited a well-known passage from Habakkuk that declares, in essence, no matter what happens to me and my community… I'm going to praise the Lord. Here's the passage. He quoted it last week, and we turn to it this. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master, with stringed instruments. What makes these verses so memorable is the bold paradox that they present. Everything is going wrong, but I'm still determined to praise the Lord with joy. Now, that's striking. Anybody can sing for joy when life is going great, but it's striking and seems maybe even crazy to be rejoicing when life is brutal and you've lost nearly everything. On the one hand, there's such an audacious declaration, and it's inspiring. On the other hand, it can seem a bit out of touch, the kind of sentiment you might express when you're on an emotional high, one of those exaggerations that comes from our mouths in a worship service, only to vanish from our true feelings in the cold light of a Monday morning. So what's up with these verses? What do they mean? What's going on in the real-life experience of the prophet Habakkuk that he would say such a thing? If we can answer questions like these, I believe that you and I will find a source of thanksgiving and joy that can't be quenched by even the worst of circumstances. We will find praise unconquerable. And actually, as I was typing this up last night, I thought, you know what? I'd like invincible better. I wish I had titled it that. So if you want to put invincible, put invincible. The passage we've looked at breaks down into these four themes. First, in verse 17, we see described devastation, devastation. Second, in verse 18, reference to joy. The beginning in verse 19, strength. And then it closes with referring to song, and particularly a song of worship to the Lord. So, where we have to start, if we're going to understand this at all, is with verse 17, with the devastation that Habakkuk describes. So, let's look at it again. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So, that's the setting. That's the context. Those are the circumstances. It's important for us to realize that what Habakkuk is describing here is not just a bad growing season. As difficult as that would be, especially in an agricultural society, what he's talking about is far worse. He's describing devastation caused by an imminent military invasion of his homeland. It's not just an economic downturn, it's the loss of everything. That's what he's describing. So how can anyone in his right mind be joyful or thankful in the middle of such humiliation and defeat? And here's the key. The devastation has not fallen upon them merely because the Babylonian military is so brutal and strong. Babylon is merely a pawn in the hand of God Himself. So even the devastation is going to end up pointing us toward the Lord and a reason for praise. Habakkuk lived in a time when his native country was increasingly wicked, and God seemed to be doing nothing to stop it. It seemed as if those that were practicing evil were getting away with it. Does that sound familiar to you? I mean, this is the world that we live in. This is the country that we live in. These are the times that we live in, and you can't escape it. Listen to what Habakkuk pleads before the Lord in Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Well, God answered Habakkuk's cry for justice. He said, no one's getting away with anything. I have a plan in place to bring justice upon the evil doers. Habakkuk 1, 5 to 7. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Well, that answered Habakkuk's first concern, but it created a new one and a greater one. How could God punish the evil of Judah with a nation more wicked even than they were? Well, God's answer to that is much like His answer to the first question. The Babylonians won't get away with the evil they practice any more than Judah will get away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. The judge of the universe will unfailingly deal with them. Habakkuk 2, 9 through 13, God says, "'Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life.'" For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, that people's labor merely for fire And nations weary themselves for nothing. What's he saying? He's saying you can build up all your wealth, you can build your houses, you can destroy nations, you can consider yourself the greatest that ever was, and it is all heading to the fire of judgment. No matter how powerful a man may become, he will end up in a box, if he's lucky. He will end up in the ground turning to dust, food for worms. No matter how powerful a nation is, no matter how wealthy, no matter how influential nations rise and fall, and if they, if they ignore the counsel of the Almighty, if they will not listen to the judgments from the ruler of the universe, they're not getting away with anything, nothing. God will exact every last payment for the sin. And of course, the gospel is either it's exacted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took our sin for us, or you will pay for it yourself. And this is true of all peoples and all nations. It reminds us of Second Peter's admonition to us, knowing that all these things are going to be solved by fire in this world. What manner of people should we be? Characterized by godliness and holiness. We need to be living for the eternal kingdom. We need to have our sights set on something greater than just how much money's in our bank account, or how fine our clothes are, or whether we have a retirement account. We have to live for more than that. Habakkuk describes judgment further in verse three of chapter three. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. It's going all the way back to the days of Mount Sinai and. Here he is in Edom's territories. As Selah, think about that. Think about the way God has worked through history. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. You look through history, and you see over and over, you see devastation of things that look like they were permanent. Or even the mountains fall. They're all all prophesying that ultimate judgment that is to come when all things will be taken down. For God is ruler of them all. But throughout history, he brings plagues, he brings fire, he takes nations up and takes them down to teach us that we are answerable to him, that he is the judge of the universe. So the devastation that Habakkuk is describing here and that he fears is not just from the horrors of an invading army, it is from the hand of God as he works out his justice in the earth. That can be confusing to us. We may not be able to figure out all the twists and turns of it, but we know that God deals with injustice and cruelty and all forms of evil in the earth, and that is a cause for gratitude. Even if we go through a time when divine judgment devastates our own surroundings and circumstances and the fields on which we depend fretting about evildoers getting away with their wickedness and about the harm that they do to others is completely unnecessary for the Lord is perfectly righteous he is the avenger of all wrongdoing that is why we don't need to carry out vengeance ourselves we turn that over to the wrath of God he can ably take care of it far better than we So what evil practices do you see people seeming to get away with that tend to make you outraged or fretful? You know, I think there's hardly a week that goes by, I mean, if I just hear a little snippet of the news that I'm not feeling that way. And, And even in recent weeks and more close to home, we've felt that way about a number of things what possible calamities tend to make you fearful and how could the conviction that god will not fail to judge righteously help control your outrage and your worry i mean it's a beautiful thing to know that you are working for the boss of everything and and that he's a good boss and, and nobody can do a coup on him. No, nobody can destroy him in any way that he will prevail. You're serving him. That's why Psalm 37 tells us to fret not yourself because of evildoers and don't be envious of their ways. They're going to fade like a leaf. They're going to wither like a green herb. They're going to be cut off. And so we don't need to be angry or wrathful or fretful. In fact, the psalmist says that only tends to evil. You'll just end up part of the evil if you're all stirred up about that. We see that on social media all the time, right? When things that are, that are bad that are happening, we have to watch our own spirit that we're still talking as the holy people of God, that we're still showing that kind of righteousness. But what about the harsh reality of living in a time of impending judgment. I mean, we're okay with God really giving it to the wicked, as long as we don't remember some of our own sins, right? But, but let's say we're right with God, but we're living among a people that are wicked, that we know where judgment's going to fall. The prophet is overcome with fear, anticipating with what was coming. Don't think that, that because he knows now that that God is at work and that He's in control and that He has a plan, that, that doesn't mean that Habakkuk doesn't feel the weight of the troubles and doesn't feel the sorrow and the pain. Sometimes people make light of the pain and the sorrow and the alarm, as if people of faith should not feel this way or do not feel this way. Don't try to comfort weeping people with happy songs. Weep with those who weep. Enter into their pain. Glossing over the painful realities of other people doesn't give them comfort. It shows disrespect and lack of compassion and understanding. We, we have to hold the full force of the devastation along with the realities that offset it. There's a tension that we must keep in place to be useful in the world, to be credible in our witness. Listen to the way Habakkuk describes his own response to what is coming. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Have you ever been so frightened, so alarmed, that, that it's like all your strength is like drops out, like this flows, like there's a leak in your body, and it all flows out. I felt that way from time to time. And that's what Habakkuk describes. Yet, so this is the reality of what I'm feeling. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. The invasion hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. It will happen in Habakkuk's lifetime. But he knows that's not the end of the story, that God will deal with them too. So that raises the question, what will happen to those who are not joining in with the sinning crowd? Will they suffer in the same way? And that leads us to our second point, the point of joy, yet, verse 18... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So God is not just a God of justice and wrath. He is a God of mercy and deliverance, even in the middle of judgment. He will continue to take care of those who are trusting in Him. He is their God of salvation. And that truth creates genuine joy even in terrible times. This is the way God puts it in Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. You wonder where that phrase came from. You didn't know they were quoting from Habakkuk. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He is not upright within him, talking about the Babylonian invaders, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Devastating judgment is surely coming, but those who are righteous because of their faith in the Lord will survive. They will thrive in a hostile world. They will thrive during the crisis. God's hand will be on them, even in the middle of the suffering. We know some of their names. Jeremiah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and those three names were all pagan names given to them in honor of foreign gods, and yet they still belonged to the true God and lived in obedience to him. And then toward the end of this time, Ezra and Nehemiah, those are only some of those we know and many we don't. They lived through a time of devastating judgment among a disobedient people and under the boot of pagan powers. But they had amazing journeys of faith with stunning impact on those around them. The devastation did not strip from them their purpose or their power or their impact. In fact, their lives still preach to us today. If anything, The troubles they endured highlighted their significance and increased it. Light is custom made for darkness, and they were light. Treading and fear are of no help in meeting the troubles of the times. Neither is it helpful to see yourself as somehow better than the worldly minded crowd. What we need is insight into why things are as they are. What we need is courage to do our part where we can. What we need is confidence that we are on mission and that we are exactly where we ought to be when we ought to be there. And stop wishing for future time or a past time, but serve God where you are with confidence that He is the God of your salvation. They would not only survive and thrive during this period, they were actually part of a larger redemption story leading to total divine victory that will one day fill the earth. Habakkuk puts it this way in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These salvation realities are why Habakkuk prays as he does in Habakkuk 3, 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear? So what you've said is going to happen, I fear it. But in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk was not asking for something God was reluctant to give. He is praying for what God had already promised. The gospel is good news that brings joy. And your connection to God's salvation plan changes everything about what the crises of life mean. If God can use the cross of Jesus to grant Him the crown and to save sinners like us and give them eternal life, He can certainly take whatever trials and persecutions we may need to bear, not only deliver us from their power, but turn those trials to amazing good. He's the God of our salvation. So how does it change the way you view whatever devastation you face or fear to know that the Lord God will not fail to rescue you no matter what happens? In what ways can you rejoice that God is master of turning bad things to good purposes and defeats into victory? I mean, He does this over and over. This this is His M.O. Read the biblical history and think about your own. God knows how to do this. That leads us to the third point in our text, and that is strength. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. You know, it's it's one thing to know that one day all will be well. I mean, I think we all know that. But how are we supposed to navigate the difficulties of the present distress? That's what I find harder to deal with. How about you? Well, the answer is this. Our strength is in God the Lord. Our strength is in Yahweh Adonai, the covenant God who is the great I Am, the master of His people, indeed the master of all the universe. That's that's where our strength is. Paul, Paul, writing believers who are living in a pagan A cult-dominated city, the city of Ephesus, writes these words to them. In fact, you remember that he had to leave this city finally because of a riot that broke out, and so he's in a stadium full of people that want him dead. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places so it's not just the presidents and the kings and the terrorists it's something worse than that spiritual forces angelic forces okay isn't it obvious we have no hope at all if we can fight in our own strength i mean we don't have a prayer Or maybe I should say all we have is a prayer because it's the Lord's strength. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able, you may have the power to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So, you know, the kind of Christianity that's dependent on everything going, you know, everything going perfect and smooth is not the Christianity of the Bible. You know, it's not just that, you know, there's some kind of of idyllic age where everything is sunshine and, and soap suds. The Bible is written in times of great conflict and difficulty and all of world history is this way and our history is this way. And And if, if our God of salvation can't help us through that, then okay, well, we'll just wait for the bad part to get over until the best part comes. But What are we supposed to do in the days in the meantime? Well, God is our strength. Here, Habakkuk describes the strength of God that he gives us as making his feet like that of a deer. Okay, we've got a lot of deer hunters in the congregation. And maybe some of you have seen deer. But if you've ever seen how a deer moves over rugged terrain, you know exactly what Habakkuk is talking about. Smooth and swift like a shadow gliding across the terrain navigating deep gullies and leaping tall fences effortlessly as if they had choreographed every move you try to walk the same terrain and you'll find yourself amazed because it, it looked like it wasn't nearly so difficult and you're you you can not even get across certain places Well, God gives us astonishing ability to navigate difficult terrain through many dangers, toils, and snares. It's a gift to us, the gift of his amazing, his astonishing grace, favor we could never deserve that he grants to us to navigate things we never thought we'd survive. You look back, and it's hard to believe you made it through. I can look back at my own life that way. I look at the life of our own church that way. I, I just It's like I, like I have to almost pinch myself that here we are. And the Lord has done it. But there's more here. He says, he makes me tread on my high places. And these words describe conquering victory. Other places in the Old Testament, they use of God himself. Think of it, if you've got the position on the the high places where you're overlooking the terrain, you've got the position uh, of, of, of power over the enemy. Habakkuk will experience participation in the victory that God brings. He can't lose. He's a citizen of the everlasting kingdom that will never fail, so no wonder his praise can't be conquered, because... God can't be conquered, and he's part of the people of God. There's always a reason to give thanks to such a Savior God who sustains and strengthens his people all the way to absolute victory. You know, it's not like a war or a ball game where it goes great in the first quarter and you tank in the last. It's no matter how the game seems to be going, you end up winning. And and this is in the final destiny itself. So what would relying on the Lord's strength look like in your life? You might want to actually meditate some on Ephesians 6 and the armor of God there and, and see what armor you need to be strapping on. And in what ways are you tempted to rely on yourself? And how could you shift that reliance to God instead? God is our strength. And then finally, the last theme we see is that of song and worship. For Habakkuk writes to the choirmaster with stringed instruments. We might look at these words as a mere footnote, and they kind of are. But they tell us that this passage is not just Habakkuk's personal experience with no relevance, no application to anyone else. In fact, as he writes chapter 3, it's to be sung in corporate worship. Three times in the chapter, you see the word selah. Stop. Think about the truth here. In times of looming devastation and in the midst of the storm, stop and think on what you know is true about God. What is true about his character, his activity in human history, his complete victory, his mercy, his salvation, his strength, because when you do, joy wells up in your heart, and it gives you voice to sing a song of praise to him. That's why God's people have always been a singing people. Sometimes we sing a lament Because we know that this is a veil of tears, times of difficulty, but is also a victory song. Because we know that God will have his way, no matter what the crises of the times. When can you take time, especially at this time of year when we are turned toward thinking about God's goodness to us, and expressing gratitude to Him. When can you take time to stop and meditate on how God has been working in your world and how He continues to do so? You, know, you, might, not, you might need to just like stop the news feed and just think about what you know to be true. In what ways are you praising God on your own and with other believers for the strength and the victory He gives? There's a reason we gather to worship as we do. There's a reason we sing. We need this. We need our brothers and sisters around us saying, this is true about God. This is true about what he's doing. This is true about us. We cannot lose. We're, we're on the winning team. We have an eternal inheritance and God is with us every day, even to the consummation of the age. We've got to keep telling ourselves this because it's true and it's necessary for us to survive the times of trouble and still praise God. These verses capture what makes our thanksgiving and praise to God invincible and never-ending. Yes, devastation, but even in the devastation, we see that God is bringing justice to the earth. No one gets away with evil. And we have joy because God, in the midst of all that, is saving His people. And we have strength. God grants superhuman ability to navigate the troubles and to bring us, without fail, to ultimate victory. And that ignites our song and gives us reason to worship We have every reason to sing to the Lord with all our hearts and to worship him in adoration because we belong to him. He is equipping us. He is at work. And and one day, our song will be greater yet. As all the people from every nation, tribe, and kindred and tongue gather together and give praise to the God who rescued them. This is praise. Unconquerable. May God help us praise Him this way as we root ourselves in these truths. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are and how you work. And we, from time to time, you lift the cover of what you are doing. And time to time, you plunge us into the crucible of trials to teach us that you have the power and the love and the wisdom to bring us through safely to the other side. And God, how could we doubt you when you have told us that even the great enemy of death cannot hold us because it could not hold Christ. He has broken its tyranny for us. That in him we have life eternal. And that we're beginning that life even now as we give praise to you for the salvation you have brought to us. We pray these things in the name of our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ.